Welcome back to Season 2 of Talking Points. This season, we're back with another 10 beautiful conversations with some of the world's most extraordinary dancers, choreographers and artistic directors. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. Today I'm speaking with Mary Lee, ballet mistress at the Queensland Ballet. Mary's story to the stage is an unlikely one. She's one of eight children and she grew up in Rockhampton in central Queensland. She was the first person in her family to try ballet, but by the age of 16, the day after completing her solo seal exam, she flew to London after being accepted into the Royal Ballet. On graduation, Mary was offered a position with the London Festival Ballet, now the English National Ballet, and was made principal within four years. But it was a chance move to Houston Ballet that saw the course of her life change again when she crossed paths with another principal dancer known as Mao's last dancer, Lee Schwingsing. They would go on to marry and dance together all over the globe. In this wonderfully brave conversation, Mary opens up about her career, meeting her husband and their decision to have children. Mary also talks about her decision to then leave her career after her eldest child was found to be hearing impaired, the grief Mary suffered believing her child would never hear music, and finally returning to the stage and going on to learn Auslan with her eldest daughter, Sophie. We're just quickly interrupting this episode to let you know that we're delighted that Mary Lee's episode of Talking Points is sponsored by Energetics. Energetics are a sustainable, Australian-made brand that specialise in creating world-class dancewear for the stars of tomorrow. Perform and feel your best at every stage of your dance journey in Energetics' premium, high-performance fabrics. You can see their entire range online at energetics.com.au and for all Talking Points listeners, there's a 20% discount on all Energetics products using the code MARY20 at the checkout. And the offer is available until the end of March 2023. Mary, it is so, so wonderful to have you with us. Welcome to Talking Points. I had the lovely pleasure of speaking with your husband last year. You had quite different journeys to principal artist. So I guess I just wanted to ask, uh, first ask, um, you know, about your childhood. Well, I um, I grew up, I was born in Brisbane, but grew up in Rockhampton. I was there from the time I was three and I'm one of eight children. So um, mainly I was sort of growing up wildly playing with the boys football or holding, bathing and feeding the next baby. We assumed that my mother just went up the road and collected one each year. Um, um, So it was very boisterous and free and I was always very adventurous. So I was a child with a lot of energy. A friend wanted to take me to ballet class and so my mother said, great, and from the moment I started, I just loved it. And this woman happened to be an extraordinary teacher and so I was really fortunate. She ended up having three principal dancers in the world from this little one ballet school, but many other very, very successful people. And for those who don't know where Rockhampton is, if we think about Australia, it's that very, in that very northern tip of Queensland, or not quite up the top, but it's yeah, central Queensland. Smack bang in the middle on the Tropic of Capricorn. So it's very hot. So we went to ballet at 6.30 in the morning because it was too hot at nine and went to school, got dressed out of our leotard in the car into our uniform and dropped off at school at 8.30. 
And then my mum picked me up at 3.30 when I was older. And I used to teach for a couple of hours and then do my senior class. Wow. And then I left um, Rockhampton when I was 16 to the Royal Ballet School. Incredible. But it'd be safe to say that Rockhampton isn't known for its multitude of ballet studios, I can't imagine. Actually, it's now it's massive. Is it? Absolutely massive. Oh, look, with the heat, really, there's only swimming, football and dance, mm. you know, so really that was that's, that's what it is. And it just happened to have this extraordinary teacher. Yeah, you write about her extensively in your book, Miss Hanson. How yeah. did she come to be in Rockhampton? I'm really not sure, actually, because no one really has a lot of history on her. She wasn't a, um, a ballerina or anything. But she was just had a huge thirst for knowledge, a brilliant understanding of music and a great understanding of history. And she didn't have any children of her own, so we were her children. I mean, she was a real classicist and artist and what she introduced us to in classical music and classical dance was incredible. We did Scottish, we did Irish, we did tap. She choreographed things. And so I guess I wanted to ask, in the era before FaceTime and, you know, live video um, auditions, how how did you come to audition for the Royal Ballet? So, well, it was a suggestion by my ballet teacher. So you didn't just assume, go to your mum and go, I want to go to the Royal Ballet School. So she talked to my parents at about 15 and, and she said, look, I was very talented but sort of quite a rough kind of diamond. But she just sort of thought if I saw what was out there, then then I would learn. So I was thirsty for knowledge. But because I started when I was eight, you know, I was a little bit behind. Yeah, that's quite late Not for a behind, dancer really. Yeah, it, it is that. Most, you I know, didn't kids start have been at five. Yeah. So, um, but I was fit, physically very strong. I had a great jump. I had great feet, great musicality. So she knew all the ingredients were there. And my parents were like, oh, okay. They, My mum wasn't a ballet mum. She sort of had no idea. And then you have to give in your results. You have to have honours or something, you know, in advanced and solo seal. And then you have to send uh, photographs in a black leotard and pink tights an arabesque and a face position and a fifth position and so they choose from your look and your body incredible so just photos and your exam results yeah exam results and recommendation from we used to go to sydney in the summer because our ballet teacher didn't like us to have holidays for eight weeks and burn our skin so we went to summer school a place called scully's in sydney wow. And Dame Nellie Potts gave me a recommendation. And so you're accepted into the Royal Ballet. Yeah. I assume you receive a letter from them? A letter. So I went down every day because we had a driveway down to the post. And, yes, it came. And it was amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it changed my life. Oh, absolutely. Because it was the only thing I wanted to do. And I know that sounds funny because a lot of people say it's the only thing they wanted to do, but um, I'd never thought about anything else, even though I didn't even really know what it was. I just knew the Royal Ballet School was a journey somewhere. 
Yeah, because it's not like you can, you know, pop over and visit and decide whether you no, like it or not. No, and I was 16 when I kissed all my brothers and sisters goodbye at the airport. They're all standing in line, all crying. It was a really sad day. And I had to go and actually do my solo seal in Brisbane before I flew. And my mum and dad came over with me for four or five weeks and sort of set me up in a bed sit where you had to put 50 cent pence in the meter to get a hot bath and you know, return charge phone call and put your milk on the outside of the window, that kind of thing. And so what was it like to move to London at 16 from Rocky? Well, I thought it was amazing because all all I wanted to do was go to ballet and we lived just around the corner and that's where we did from nine till five. And then if you were lucky, you could get a standing room at Covent Garden. And, and if someone wasn't sitting in the seat, you could sneak into the seat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because I hadn't really seen many performances. So that was incredible. It was, a, it was just ballet, just full on all day. Isn't that incredible that you say that it's all you wanted to do and yet you'd only seen a few performances? It's quite an amazing, like, leap I know, to make. I know. But I was really driven by the music and the adventure of once I got to London, you know, I went to see Billy Lyre at Drury Lane and lots mm. of, so I was captivated by the theatrical experience and the music and all these people that were wanting to do the same thing and the Royal Ballet Company rehearsed upstairs, Antoinette Sibley, Dow, Rudolph, Margot, Macmillan, Ashton, they're all in the studio. Gosh, it sounds like a dream. <laughs> Yeah, so it was incredible. People I'd I'd never, because I didn't even have a ballet book. I don't think you could even get them in Rockhampton. (laughs) You could barely get ballet shoes. And so you trained there for two years and then you're accepted into the London. Actually, it wasn't even two years. It was just a year and a half. But I really felt, you know, the expense for my parents was, you know, difficult. And I just heard one other girl saying she was going for an audition. I was like, well, where? And she said, oh, to festival ballet I'd never even heard of festival ballet and I said well I'm coming too so off I went with 200 girls I didn't actually get in but the ballet mistress remembered me from the Royal Ballet School summer performance where I did one of the leading roles at Covent Garden and a couple of weeks later she gave me a call and said we'd like to see you again come in so um, I went into a place called Donmar Studios which is Covent Garden and it only had one studio, so you have to walk across the studio. And it was only a girl's dressing room and a boy's dressing room. So everybody got changed. I tried to be inconspicuous and then sort of find a little place in the corner in the studio. And then this man walked past in big furry coat and boots and everything. And I went, oh, that's Rudolf Nureyev. <laughs> and so I did class with him for a week. And that's the reason I got my job, because he was creating a new Romeo and Juliet and they needed more girls. And this woman really liked me because she'd worked a bit with the Australian ballet. So mm-hmm. she sort of liked Australians. They were uncomplicated and hard workers. Mm-hmm. And that was my job. And she was my ballet mistress for the next seven years. And she was another amazing teacher. So it's really, if you get those people, it's amazing. Oh, incredible. Yeah. And also the, it sounds like in Miss Hanson and at the festival ballet you had, which is now the English National, you had these real leaders in teachers, like almost mentors. Yes. Yeah, very lucky. Or maybe I was drawn to them Mm. in particular. 
and then, you know, drawn to certain people. And then, you know, I was drawn to Ben Stevenson. That's why I ended up going to Houston. And so how did you, I mean, you rise through the ranks at London Festival Ballet, become a principal artist. How does it come to be that you go from London to join the Houston Ballet? Well, um, I'd worked with Ben Stevenson a lot. He's he's he was doing um he did Cinderella for us, and he had very and a beautiful Four Last Songs, which is a famous famous Strauss music, mm. and and quite a few oh and a beautiful Paderewski Three Preludes, which is Rachmaninoff. And so we built up this relationship, and I just adored his coaching and his artistry. And I'd been in London for nine years. And the boss, the, this was my fourth director in London, and he was also my partner, not my romantic partner, but my partner in the studio, plus oh, um, my boss. So I thought that was quite challenging, really. Mm. And I thought if I, if I make a move, I have to make it now because there's a certain period where you get to a certain age as a ballerina and they won't look at you. So I was 27 mm. And Ben offered me a principal contract and it was like now or never. And when I got to Houston, Lee was my partner. And I just thought, oh, that's just magic because he was just an incredible partner. So and as a principal dancer, you know, you can't do it on your own. You Mm. need a great partner. You know, it's never one. Mm. It's two. And without the partner, you can't. So and Lee was just, yeah, well, one of the best, actually, for me, definitely. And can you tell us about that first moment that you met Lee? Um, well, I met him in London first. He had come to see us perform and I had snuck over to see Houston Ballet perform, but I was trying to hide <laughs> and so that my director didn't know I was looking at other companies. And um, <sighs> Lee saw me in the audience and came and sat down next to me and tried to sort of chat to me about um, what he'd seen you know, on the stage night before, but I was trying to be, you know, inconspicuous. (laughs) And so I kind of didn't really answer him. I was very short. So he thought I was quite the snob (laughs) until I actually ended up partnering with him and we went to New York and did um, things at the city centre. I did Swan Lake in New York and then uh, back in Houston and, you know, travelled all over America and we went to Singapore and, you know, it was amazing, actually. And then and I did all of Ben's choreography, which was wonderful. And, I mean, people talk about how rare that connection is on stage to have that yeah. partnership. I imagine once the relationship starts to develop outside of the studio, that just intensifies. Um, no, we had that chemistry already. It's a... Um, we tried not to be partners actually outside the studio because we didn't want to ruin the chemistry in the studio. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, it doesn't necessarily develop like that um, and lots of people are partners that don't actually work well together. Mm. Lee was the right height, the right age, you know, proportions, musicality, work ethic, they all come into play, you know, those sort of things and chemistry is just not explainable it's either there or it's not mm. it's not teachable and I had it with um Kelvin Coe in mm. Australia and an Italian guy Paganini and it's unusual to have it in your career it's lucky yeah did you know Lee's backstory when you met him no 
And so w- what were your thoughts to be becoming romantically involved with him once, you know, I, I assume you started to find out about his his history in Houston? Yes. Oh, you know, it was fascinating. He, he was a great storyteller. So he'd still, so everything just evolved very easily and he told me, you know, certain things and stories. Although I'd been to China in 1981, I could kind of get some kind of grip on it. But, you know, at that time we didn't know much about China. Mm. And it wasn't until 1988 when we went after we were married into the commune that I was like, oh, my God, Mm. how could someone get from there to there? And even at that point I thought, oh, I wish I could write. Incredible. And so had you and Lee married at this stage when you went to where he grew up? When we when we went in 1988. Oh, sorry. Yes, in 1988. Yeah, because I, he couldn't have gone back unless he was married because maybe they would have kept him. I don't know. But it wasn't safe. Wow. You then go on to have three beautiful children. Um, this comes yeah. up for a lot of dancers when they're, you know, at the height of their careers and want yeah. want to go and have a baby and that, you know, changes into their body and, you know, how yeah. they'll return to the stage. Was that something that you struggled with? Yeah, it was, um, it was hard. I got quite anxious and so I stayed in shape, had my baby, and then two months later I went, you know, I started working and then I did sugar plump five months after Sophie was born. So I was just terrified not to be able to get my body back. So it was pretty Mm. quick really because I started pushing early. And also I was 31 or just 31, so quite young really. So it's everybody has a different journey. Like I I felt I had to get up there sooner than later Mm. and other people take a year. I didn't feel I'd get back if I did that. Mm. And I think that, you know, the programs around maternity leave and, you know, um, body conditioning and, you know, Pilates, it it just didn't exist. I didn't have anyone helping me, just Lee. You know, I just did it myself Mm. and then joined company class and off I went. Wow. Really? Yeah. I mean, obviously a chapter of your life that I suppose hadn't been so well known Um, before you released your book uh, last year and obviously the Australian story that came out at that time um, was, you know, the story of your eldest daughter and her journey and, of course, your journey with um, her profound deafness. Yeah. I guess I just wanted to ask about that time where you realised you couldn't return to the stage. Well, the whole thing was completely overwhelming as something that you something so left feel. It's like you're going on a 90-degree angle and suddenly it goes completely right-angled. Yeah, there's an incredible um, story which you talk about in both your book and Australian Story where I think she was nearly 18 months, Sophie, and a balloon popped in a park. Yeah, And she was the only one not to react. Yeah. Mm. Then we sort of knew, even though I was a bit in denial, but Lee was less so. But once you know, that we'd had the RBA, he sort of got into denial and I was like, accepted it. Interesting. Yeah, so oh, it was yeah. very interesting. So I wasn't prepared for that. Uh, and, I mean, I think I had the perfect life. I had a beautiful baby, beautiful husband. His parents came from China. They lived with us. They looked after Sophie. I got on stage. That was all amazing. And overnight that changed 
So first of all, I wanted to rewind and go back to where I didn't have that sort of responsibility Mm. or had to make that decision. And then I knew I couldn't rewind. So I just sort of had to ask my myself what I could live with in the future. And my answer was I had to hear my daughter's voice. And then I, I knew, you know, as, as time passed, I knew that I had to be the teacher, that no one else would do it. Mm. And so that's what I felt I could live with. And, you know, I was her lifeline. Mm. So I never left her. I spoke all day, every day for 15 years. Incredible. But now it's such a joy. I mean, it's just, it was hard for me writing the book because I didn't want to go back there. But she made me write, she made me write it. Mm, incredible. And she helped me, which was incredible. It's hard for me to go back there and think that little girl again and how I had to push her. Mm. It was very difficult. It wasn't normal mother-daughter. Yes. Because A, she couldn't hear until she sort of had the implant, which we didn't know. No Mm. one knew the success of the implants then. And she was also four, so she was very language delayed. Mm. Yeah. I mean, life as a mum is obviously extremely busy. Did you ever have time to grieve the life that you had left behind on stage? Moments, I think, but I couldn't dwell too much. I think what was wonderful was that Lee always let me sort of coach him and teach him. Mm. So instead of shutting me out, he really invited, because he missed me in the studio as well. Mm. Yeah, it was a real end for both of you. For yeah, you. It was, yeah, exactly, for him as well. And so I sort of became his coach, his sidekick really. Mm. So, and then other people asked me to coach them. So I kept my hand in. Mm. And then when we came to Australia, I started teaching again. And then, of course, I wanted to teach professionals and then people from the Australian Ballet would ask me to coach them and then Mm. my, um, and then I got a job with the Australian Ballet and became a professional coach and teacher. Mm. Yeah. Incredible, like the strength of yours and Lee's relationship because I can imagine just the the grief, particularly not as just a mum but as a dancer as well, to think that your child won't have music in in their life like you've had. I know. It's devastating. Absolutely. But he, well, we obviously have a very strong relationship and he was marvellous with Sophie, although not particularly great with language. But then Sophie Mm. ended up wanting to do Chinese in year 11 and 12 and she did. Wow. And though she she would come home and he would come home, you know, late or whatever, she'd wait up and say, Dad, come and help me with the Chinese. I mean, that must be something that you never would have thought that you're... Oh, and we sent it to China. She went, she did like a a winter camp there for eight weeks. So she's incredibly independent and came back and she was like, you know, thinking in Chinese. I mean, she's stopped a little bit now and she just spent a year before COVID in, in Shanghai. She absolutely loves it had to come back and would love to go back there. Such testament to your parenting, incredible. Yeah, I don't know about that. But anyway, they... <laughs> well, I do imagine there was some uh, interesting conversations. I, I hear that you're both learning Auslan now and that um, that journey yeah. into another world of Sophie's. Yeah. And so can you tell us, so you decide to leave Houston and return to Australia where, as you mentioned, you started teaching for the Australian Ballet. So what yeah. was that decision-making like to come back from Houston to Australia? Uh, you know, I personally always 
sort of thought that I would come back. Um, Look, I was just so happy to be able to educate them in Australia. Mm. But it was really up to Lee because he he got the job with the Australian Ballet and he really did it for me. I wanted to be closer to my family and I'm so glad I did. Mm, yeah, you both come from huge, huge families. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and he's made Australia home, although it was difficult for him at first. It was very strange compared to America. Yeah, very strange. So it took him a good, you know, 12 months really. To settle in. Yes, yeah, it's quite, it's quite different culture, yeah. Lee is appointed, I think, several years after you're back as artistic director for Queensland Ballet and then you move up to Brisbane. Yeah. And now you work as the ballet mistress for the Queensland Ballet. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought back in Queensland? And we absolutely love it. Incredible. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts about, you know, has that sort of healed those wounds that perhaps ending your, you know, career on the stage early? I think so. Like I love teaching. I love giving back. And I did have an extensive career and I'm a classical coach and I work with the, the most, the principal dancers, mm. which is a special relationship because they're, they're mature people. Mm. And without that sort of background, you can't do that job. Yeah, you're right. They're adults in their own right. They're not you oh, know, yeah. stu- you so know, young. So it's a very special um, relationship and a privilege really, and without your background, and there's just not many of us in Australia actually. Mm. People have had that career and that have the will and the um, talent to pass it on. Yeah, incredible. It's not an everyday occurrence really because you have to have the knowledge, you have to have done it, and then you have to want to communicate it. It's very specialised actually. So we're going to the show tonight for Lee's Choice, Mm -hmm. yeah, which is in the Playhouse, beautiful program. And Lee and I danced in Elite Syncopations, the last piece, the Macmillan piece. Well, it's interesting you say that because when I spoke with Lee last year, he was saying that you were re-entering the stage, but I thought it was the Sleeping Beauty. Was it just no, a Cinderella? No, um, Sleeping Beauty. No, it's in Manon. Oh, Manon last year for the no, sixth Manon's year. No, Manon's end of September, October. Oh, okay. Did you return so to later, the stage last year? year? Yeah, it's later in the year. Oh, yep. okay, last, later this year. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I, when I spoke with Lee, you know, COVID had just ended and I think Hugh Packard had found out that they could have 100% capacity as an audience. Yeah, and I did the Queen, yeah, yeah. And so I guess just to finish, I just wanted to ask, you know, as you look back and as a coach of principal artists, is there anything that you would do differently in terms of, you know, as a dancer or, you know, even that journey into motherhood, which I know a lot of dancers struggle with? I don't get too set on things. I, I, I just I feel that I'm learning all the time and I think that's what's helped me to be able to get over disappointments and all that. I just go, you know, I'm still learning mm. and I think that's, that's what keeps it interesting and still there's nothing else I really want to, you know, work at. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. It is my whole being really and mm. I still get you know, quite emotional when things are good and and that's what the that's what ballet did for me. And mm. but it still does it really, even though I'm sitting on the other side. Mm. I think you can always learn. That's that's the key really. I mean I learned a lot writing the book, my God. Oh, I can imagine revisiting all those times. Yeah. <laughs> that was hard. <laughs> yeah. 
I can imagine. Look, Mary, thank you so much for speaking to us. Your story is just so incredible. And you and Lee together, just such strength and resilience. So thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Mary continues to train and teach the principal artists of the Queensland Ballet, all the while juggling life with Lee and their three adult children, Sophie, Tom and Bridie. Mary continues to learn Auslan and her book, Mary's Last Dance, is available on Audible and in all good bookshops. If you'd like to listen to Lee's conversation with me, please scroll down to Season 1, Episode 5, and we'll also pop the link in the show notes. And finally, to continue to follow all of Mary's adventures, you'll find her on Instagram. For the transcribed version of this episode, please head to fjordreview.com. Mary and I recorded remotely, with Mary dialing in from Brisbane. This episode was produced in Sydney on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation to whom we pay our greatest respects. Talking Points is produced by Fjord Review. Remember to subscribe to get the episodes as soon as they're released and if you like us, please leave a five-star review. On the next episode of Talking Points, I speak with Bo Dean Riley-Smith. And they're like, oh, he's going to be this six-foot tall blonde surfer. And like in comes me, this chubby little Aboriginal guy from everywhere. Um, <laughs> Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson, with additional production by Penelope Ford and Clint Topic. Sound production and editing by Martin Peralta at Output Media. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com.